The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a more or less family-friendly celebration of all that is geeky. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and along with my daughter, we are two generations of geek. This is episode 41, Midnight Mac, part two of my interview with New York Times best-selling author David Mack, writer of much tie-in fiction and the forthcoming original novel Midnight Front. But first, a program note. Ella, away at college, was not able to join me for this interview, but on her behalf, I did bring up her favorite Dave Mack story. Now, back to the show. Okay, so we're back. We've talked about Star Trek. Let's talk about something very, very serious next. Rush. That is important. That's religion, baby. How many times have you seen Rush live in concert? Ah, oh, that's a very good question. I... I never actually counted the number of actual concerts I went to. What I do know is I have seen at least one show on every tour since Signals in 1982. And I sometimes saw more than one show Mm -hmm. on a given tour. I've probably been to maybe 20 shows. Nice. Over 15 tours. And uh, that's, you know, so I've been going to see them since I was about 13 years old, uh, you know, back in 82. And... I had not been old enough to see them prior to that. Uh, And in the years since then, I had come to love many of those earlier albums, and I had heard some of the bootleg recordings from earlier tours. And the one thing that I had always lamented was that there was a a bit that they did off of an album in 78 called Hemispheres, the title track to that, uh, that I'd always wanted to hear live because it's one of my favorite things, and I always thought it would be this triumphant thing to hear live. And although I've never gotten to hear the whole thing performed live, they did at least the opening prelude from it as part of their medley during their final tour, the uh, 40th anniversary tour last Mm -hmm. year. And to actually be in the audience and to hear even a part of Hemispheres performed live brought tears to my eyes because I had waited my entire life to hear it. And suddenly there it was. So that was a very, that coupled with the fact that I knew it was probably the end of the line for the band yeah. made it a very emotional night for me. And you've gotten to meet the band, haven't you? I've met two thirds of the band. I've met Getty, mm-hmm. uh, Getty Lee, the lead vocalist and bass player. Yeah. And I've met Alex Lifeson, the lead guitarist. I got to hang out with both of them backstage at PNC Bank Art Center back in 2007 for about an hour. And that was really cool. And I had brought uh, gifts for each of them, uh, books that had characters named in their honor. Uh, Getty and Alex uh, both have characters named for them in my Wolverine novel, Road of Bones. Uh, In each case, I used their real names. Uh, Gary Lee, I think, was the uh, park ranger. And then I had Alexander Zivaginovich, which is the real name uh, of uh, Alex Lifeson, as a KGB case officer who's friends with Logan. Nice. Uh, so I managed to work them into the book. And then I had uh, one of my Star Trek books, two of them actually, A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal, my first two paperback works for Star Trek, uh, had a character named Jim Peart, named in honor of Neil Peart. And uh, I had autographed and inscribed those books for Neil, And I gave them to Getty to give to Neil, and and they took care of it. And about a month or so, I think, after that tour ended, 
I got a very nice email from Neil. He found it a bit odd to see a character named after him <laughs> in the book, but he uh, he definitely took it as a compliment. I, I later learned that before he emailed me, to make certain that I was, as he put it, for real, he contacted his friend Kevin J. Anderson, mm -hmm. uh, who is a very close friend of his, to uh, check out my bona fides. And fortunately, <laughs> Kevin, uh, who had met me a couple of years before that, vouched for me. Uh, so that was very nice of him. And uh, so I, I've, I've met Getty. I've met Alex. I've gotten an email from Neil, and I responded to it. It's not like we have an ongoing pen pal relationship. <laughs> I sent him one reply saying it was, uh, you know, thank you very much. Uh, I hope to meet you, you know, in person one day, uh, bring you a good bottle of scotch if we do. And never heard back from him. And although I've got this email address, which in theory goes to Neil, I've never been, uh, I guess, presumptuous enough to think that I had the right to use it. Yeah. Yep. So I, I would never bother him out of the blue because I, I don't. I didn't get the sense that he was inviting me to do so. Yeah. Uh, so I responded once politely to the email he sent, and then I've just never abused that information. I've only seen Rush one time, um, and it was on the Signals tour. So my my first Rush concert was the same as your first Rush concert. Wow. And you never went again. And I never went again. You fool. <laughs> I don't go out to things as much as I should, because I'm, I'm not a fan to the degree that you are by any means, but uh, I am quite fond of them. And I, you know, I have their first half dozen albums, I believe. Those were a significant part of the, the soundtrack of my college years, <laughs> listening yeah. to uh, Fly By Night and stuff over and over and over again on LP. I now have them on CD. I think I've bought the entire Rush catalog at this point, or at least good chunks of it. At least three times. I remember buying it on vinyl back in the uh, early 80s, everything that was available at the time. Yep. And, then as, and then as the vinyl collected dust or got scratched or whatever, I rebought almost everything up to that point on cassette. So this would have been through the late 80s. <laughs> and then compact discs came out, so I then had to rebuy, yep. I think, everything up through Presto it had to be rebought uh, actually, no, everything up through Hold Your Fire had to be rebought on CD, and then I just bought CD for everything after that. Yeah, and then you have to buy the remastered version. Not <laughs> always. Uh, the only, actually, the only time I've ever made a specific effort to uh, buy a redone version of a Rush album was Vapor Trails. And that's because Vapor Trails, its original release, was not very well mixed. There were a yeah. lot of issues... With the levels, the original version uh, that came out was very muddy. They had a new producer they were working with who seemed to just have a real grudge against the concept of any kind of a solo uh, or bridge anywhere in a song. And mm -hmm. so the songs all had kind of a sameness to the arrangement, but there was no sense of dynamic range. Like the whole thing had been cranked to 11 and became this wall of sonic mud that you just could not penetrate on the uh, original version. And although you could still tell there was something great in there, it was very hard to get to it uh, through just, you know, the, the generally muddy, overdone, over-amplified sound of the original mix. Yeah. And the, the weird thing about that is, I, I remember hearing about that at the time, and it's the kind of thing that you would expect to have happen to a new band 
not a band so far into their career that is known for a certain sound. There were a lot of complicating factors, and the first thing you got to take into account is that, A, there was pressure from the studio, uh, from the uh, label at that point, to do this sort of thing to record albums, because there was yeah. this concept of, you know, if your uh, album is being played on air, you know, if the level is too low, that's going to seem weak, you know, in comparison to other tracks, and, you know, they're not taking into account equalization and yada, yada, yada. And then the other problem was that you had the uh, this very long, drawn-out recording and editing and mixing process on Vapor Trails to the point where they spent longer on that one album than they had ever spent on any other album they've ever done. And part of the reason for that was that it was them coming back together after a period of about four years apart. Mm -hmm. uh, because after the Test for Echo album, after the uh, Different Stages tour or whatever, in a span of about 10 months, Neil Peart uh, lost his daughter and then he lost his wife. His daughter died in a single car accident going back to college for her sophomore year. Uh, when she was only 19 years old, that was his only child. And then his wife passed away of cancer about 10 months later. And so in a span of 10 months, he lost his whole family. And he goes on this 55,000-mile motorcycle journey, mm -hmm. uh, you know, up to Yellowknife, the Arctic Circle, Alaska, back down the Pacific Coast, Vancouver Island, down the PCH, uh, you know, into Central and South America and whatever. It's like he's just... He, he became a, a pilgrim, you know, trying to figure out his life. And, you know, he just sort of dropped off the map for about four years. And during that period of time, you know, Getty and Alex recorded some solo albums. Alex started working on doing TV soundtrack work and film soundtrack work. Getty started pursuing other interests, uh, started collecting wine, uh, started getting even deeper into baseball memorabilia collecting. Uh, and a you know, variety of other things. And then it was a situation where, you know, only after the passage of many years and the sort of healing journey that Neil had to go on, that they started to come back together again, uh, around 2001 or so. And, uh, they weren't even sure that they were going to record again. Like when they, you know, they, they tell the story in one of their tour books when they first got together after all this time apart. They rented out this studio, I guess, where they had liked to work before. And they basically, you know, paid for the studio. They paid the salaries of all the technicians, the engineers, the support personnel, whatever. But they sent them all home for a month. And for mm -hmm. a month, basically, these three guys would escape the entire world and go to this studio where, you know, all the staff has been dismissed with pay. And they basically didn't record anything. They weren't working on music. They basically spent a month talking. Think about that. Yeah. Three, three old friends, three guys who've known each other most of their lives, who've been through all the highs and all the lows. And you've got this one friend in the group who has endured this unimaginable tragedy. And they spend a month, like, you know, 14 hour days, you know, day in, day out for a month. And all they do is talk. And then they weren't even sure, well, do we want to record? Do we want to tour? Do we even still think we can do this? And they just, you know, sort of slowly eased their way back into it. And they kept going to the studio and they said, look, we have no agenda. If an album comes out of it, great. If not, who cares? Yeah. And they just, you know, sort of, you know, would start experimenting and noodling and laying down tracks, 
but it made for a very long, drawn out, unfocused process. Mm -hmm. And by the end of it, because it was so emotionally draining, because it was so long in terms of the time and effort put in, it was one of those situations where you can imagine by the time you get to the end of it, you are physically and mentally exhausted. And so when people say, you know, in that context, when you realize that it was in that context that this pressure from the label and maybe other factors that you know came into the decision-making process about the mix, mm-hmm. that's how you get the original Vapor Trails, which is a brilliant album, but badly put together from a technical standpoint from, you know, if you look at everything from like waveform analysis of the original album, it's just, it's a mess. Uh, but it's a brilliant album. If you get past that, like when I, when you see them on tour, when you hear the live versions of those songs, you realize this album is incredible. It's brilliant, but it's just badly engineered. So when they finally in 2013 put out, the remixed version of Vapor Trails, where they basically went back to the master recordings and had some had a new person go in and remix it all and make new masters and just go. And they didn't re-record anything. They didn't yeah. record new material. They just went back to the clean masters and just did a, a just put it together properly this time. And you know, chose maybe some alternate takes and whatever that weren't used before. And the resulting album, Vapor Trails Remixed, is just so much better it is just objectively better it has a better sound better dynamic range better clarity it is just a a far superior presentation of that material that is the only time i have made a specific point of rebuying a rush album because it has had significant production work done on it Mm -hmm. other than that like remastered or gold master i'm like i don't care it's (laughs) my ears aren't that sensitive at this point that i'm gonna be able to difference (laughs) but on that album vapor trails remixed on that one i could tell now much like your love of star trek got you to write star trek your love of rush got you to write rush after a fashion after a fashion yes um a couple of years ago kevin j anderson who you will remember i mentioned earlier is a good friend of neil peart had the idea with a friend of his john mcfetridge to put together an anthology of short stories, either based directly upon or inspired by the music of Rush. The idea was not to simply take the songs and storyfy them, but rather to use them as jumping off points in much the same way that Neil and the band would take pieces of fiction like Roll the Bones by Fritz Lieber or uh, a nice Sunday drive, uh, and then would turn them, or, or, you know, or you know, for instance, the Fountainhead and turning it into 2112. Basically, the idea was just as the band was inspired by fiction to create some of their most iconic songs, many science fiction, fantasy, and other authors have cited Rush as major creative influences over the years. So Kevin thought it would be great to reach out to uh, a bunch of us, some of many of us who he already knew of, and then some who he didn't know of, but who were very quick to put up their hands when he sent out the call. And he said, you know, I'm putting together this anthology. You know, if you are a professionally published author uh, in science fiction, fantasy, or some other genre, mystery, horror, whatever, and you are a big, you know, a, a serious fan of Rush and you cite them as a creative influence and you'd be interested in submitting a story, let me know. And in his original solicitation post, there is then a little bit in parentheses that says, yes, Mac, I can already see you. Put your hand. 
So eventually uh, we, he puts the whole thing together and uh, it's time for me to come up with a story. And I start going through it. He wanted all of us to sort of announce in advance to him which song we were using as our basis of inspiration. Because he didn't want like, you know, eight stories based on Tom Sawyer. He yeah. wanted some variety. He wanted the stories to sort of represent the range of the band. But at the same time, he also wanted to make certain that they were songs from the catalog that would be recognizable to both a casual Rush fan and to a diehard Rush fan. He didn't want too many deep cuts. He didn't want any repetition. So I thought that was reasonable. And originally, I thought I was going to write some sort of a Mad Maxi type thing based off the song Driven. And then that didn't work out. And I realized that it was a good idea, but I couldn't execute it in a short story format. Mm -hmm. And then I played with a couple of other ideas that went nowhere. And then I had this time travel notion. And in the book, you know, in the finished uh, version, it says, you know, inspired by Show Don't Tell, which is off the Presto album. And it's a song that is pretty much composed of courtroom uh, references, you know, uh, evidence, jury, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. basically courtroom lingo uh, turned into uh, you know, a song. And I had this notion of a story about time travel, but in the form of a courtroom drama. But the story actually didn't arise initially from that song. It actually came out of a song off of their first album called Here Again, which is uh, a curious thing because the first album, Neil Peart wasn't with the band yet. That was when John Rutsey was the drummer. And all of the lyrics off of the first album were uh, either by Getty or by Alex, most of them by Getty. So Here Again... Uh, was actually a song with lyrics by Getty Lee. But there were just these sort of haunting lines, and it's a very kind of a slow, downbeat, kind of a almost maudlin type of thing. But, you know, there, there's something a little bit edgy about it. Uh, but there's lines like, you know, I know I've seen your face before. And that kind of got me thinking about time travel and, you know, people meeting again and again and again. And so the story kind of began to evolve out of that. And then the notion of turning it into a courtroom drama came about as, you know, a, a way to argue about the uh, esoteric points of time travel in a narrative format, but without it just having being two talking heads with nothing at stake. Yeah. And then eventually what happened is, is that, you know, over the course of it evolving and Kevin saying, well, you know, I can sell this better if you link it to a better known song. I selected Show Don't Tell for the courtroom metaphor. And the story, which is called Our Possible Pasts, which, again, an astute listener might realize is a nod to Pink Floyd, who uh, wrote a song called Your Possible Pasts on the final cut LP. Our Possible Pasts is a story about love, loss, grief, and time travel in the form of a courtroom drama. What we have is an assistant U.S. attorney named Juan Robles, he is grieving over the recent loss of his husband in a violent attack, a mass shooting of some sort. And he is tasked with prosecuting a woman who claims to have invented a form of time travel that allows people to transmit their memory and consciousness back through time, through a wormhole, to their younger selves and imprint into their younger mind so that they essentially will awaken in their younger self with the memories of the life they've lived. And the moment that happens, they branch off into a quantum parallel universe where they can basically live their life over and make either try to replicate their decisions 
or make new decisions and try and completely set a whole new path for their life. But it's essentially a do-over. And my original working title for the story was Mulligan. Uh, <laughs> but Kevin J. Anderson didn't get the joke of Mulligan. He didn't know what a Mulligan was. So I was like, not a golfer, <laughs> I take it. Okay. So the notion is that it's a, you know, a, a great thing. And the, pro- the thing is, from a scientific standpoint, it's actually one of the few really feasible uh, proposals for how to tra- tra- travel through time. If you can learn how to read the chemically stored, the electrochemical information in the brain, if you can learn to read it like a hard drive with an electrochemical pulse and turn it into an analog signal and then transmit it back through time and find a way to imprint it as electrochemical information into the same brain, then in theory, this could work. I mean, it's pretty out there science, but it's not the most implausible thing in the world. And because it relies on quantum branching theory rather than, you know, overriding temporal theory, it answers the question of, well, if you sent this person back in time, why don't they remember doing it? It's like, well, because they've simply transposed their mind into a quantum, uh, you know, parallel branch. Now they've gone off in this other direction, but their memory and consciousness is still alive there, which is great, except for the fact that the process kills the body in the here and now, because the pulse that has to read and it basically charge up all that electrochemical information in the brain so that it can be read and transmitted as a signal turns the brain essentially into tapioca pudding by the time it's done. So you have this problem where for our inventor of time travel, she has the formula. She's got the math. The math all looks good from a purely theoretical perspective. Her procedure works. Here's the problem in a court of law. She can't prove it. Because all she has is a bunch of corpses. You got it. And even if, even if her process works exactly as she has described it, even if she could prove that the memory and consciousness of these people has been transposed and now lives on in this other timeline, the problem is she still killed them in this one. (laughs) Yeah. There's no winning for her. So she's completely boned. So the problem is we tell the whole story from the point of view of the prosecutor who is charged with getting her convicted. And for him, the biggest problem is he's not sure she deserves to be convicted. So, so it's all about his crisis of faith over what he's doing and whether or not a, she's really guilty or B what she's guilty of. And then C if she is found guilty, what is the proper punishment? If any. Yeah. I quite liked the story. Um, It's a common daydream. You know, what would you do if you could go back to your younger self. And so I, I really liked that you could take that element mm-hmm. and <laughs> develop, like you said, within the context of sci-fi, a plausible means of doing so. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun. And the tie-in to the to the Rush stuff was fun. I enjoyed the anthology. It was a clever idea. Yeah. Every morning I would read a short story. Then after the story, I would go on to Rush's uh, website Ah, look for the lyrics. I didn't do it beforehand because I wanted to uh, read the story on its own first. Very smart. And then I would go read the lyrics. And it was also very fascinating, the the differences that you get when you, when you have a collection of different writers. And the different songs, sung songs lent themselves to a more direct line between the inspiration and the final story. And then others were very obscure. You know, you could... the Oblique, you know, yeah. Yeah, there'd be... You know, obviously there was some 
little hint of inspiration there for the author, but it wouldn't necessarily leap out at you when you would go back and read the lyrics, and, uh, and w- which was very interesting, looking at how the authors approach things. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was an enjoyable book. I would yeah. recommend it to anyone who's a uh, sci-fi f- slash Rush fan, and it's obviously an audience that has a lot of overlap because yes. <laughs> they're very sci-fi-y kind of dudes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think one of my favorite stories in there, aside from my own, was uh, Brian Hodge's story, The Burning Times version 2.0, which was inspired by the Rush song Witch Hunt. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of a, a great story about, you know, modern day censorship, but it also incorporating elements of magic and witchcraft and paganism. Yeah. Um, just a terrific story. I was really impressed by the prose styling and the world building that he did in just a very short piece uh, to the point where I... I made sure to take the time to drop him an email just to tell him how much I had enjoyed his work. I was really impressed with that story. So, as a tie-in guy, yeah. you get a rep, and it gives you opportunities to write other tie-in stuff. So, you've written a uh, 24 novel. Yeah, among other things. I mean, I've, as you say, I've had the opportunity to write for a number of different franchises beyond Star Trek. I've gotten to work for 24. I've done some work in comics for uh, Farscape. Uh, I've gotten to write for the 4400 and Wolverine, but 24 for me was really kind of the highlight uh, of my work outside of Star Trek in that I managed to get out of science fiction, out of fantasy, into more of a mainstream thriller uh, sort of a market. And Jack Bauer was a character I'd wanted to write for a very long time. I would watched every minute of the TV show 24 and uh, I had been very excited about 24 Live Another Day. So when I was approached by Tor Books, uh, by editor Melissa Frain, saying, you know, would would I like to write a 24 novel? There was no hesitation. I was like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm in. Uh, tell me what you want and when you want it, and I'll get it to you. So I, uh, I signed a board for what, at the time, sounded like it was going to be a very fast turnaround rush job kind of a thing, where they basically contacted me in May and needed a manuscript by the end of August. So we really had to scramble through story development. Wow. Yeah. And then I had a very busy summer of writing. And the funny thing was that in the midst midst of all this, like right around the time or right after I turned in the manuscript, suddenly all the urgency went out of the project. Publication got delayed to the following year. (laughs) Um, And I was like, and that's fine because, you know, I did my part. I hit my deadline. I got paid. So... I said, okay, well, the book comes out when it comes out. And it came out last fall, last September, September of 2015. Not only was I very happy with it in that I got to write a classic Jack Bauer on his own versus the bad guys type of story, it was actually the first time one of my books has won a Scribe Award from the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers. It won in the category of Best Original Novel, general category. Uh, I had submitted... Uh, novels uh, pretty much for most of the last 10 years with only a couple of exceptions. Uh, A lot of them, most of them, my Star Trek work. And although I had garnered a few nominations over the years, I hadn't won. uh, And this was my first time winning the award. So that was a a real thrill for me. And uh, it made me very happy that it was for something like this, where I'm finally starting to break free of the, the Star Trek mold and for that book to be so well received by a jury of my peers, fellow professional writers of tie-in fiction, recognizing that this represents, you know, what we consider to be excellence in our field. 
I found that to be a, a very rewarding uh, result. I read the book because you're a buddy of mine. I've actually never watched any 24, if you can believe it. Really? It was just one of those shows that for whatever reason I didn't get started on. And then since it, it, it was such a serial kind of show. Too late to jump in. Then it's just like, well, now, you know, there's just no. <laughs> and, and, and so it's kind of faded into the background. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I would ever go back and, and, and view it up. But I had a lot of fun reading it. And, um, and, and it was just a good action adventure, thriller, espionage kind of, kind of book. So I mean, that's yeah. exactly what 24 is. And that yeah. would be why I would recommend to anybody who's a fan of that genre, and especially anyone who aspires to write in that genre, whether on screen or in print, mm-hmm. watch 24, you know, get it either. I, I don't know if it's on Amazon Prime or Netflix or whatever, or if you have to rent the discs, but it's worth watching all the way through from season one through the end, because if nothing else, it is a master class in how to uh, structure story with consistent pacing, uh, to structure cliffhanger endings to each act of a teleplay, as well as to the end of each hour of a teleplay. Uh, And then beyond the fact that each individual episode has its, uh, you know, five act structure, there's a three act structure, usually operating on the meta level of every season. So that if you look at each 24 episode season, Mm -hmm. typically the first six episodes of the season represent act one, the setup, the establishment of a dramatic question, instigating event, whatever, with a turn at the end of act six that then propels us in a slightly different direction uh, for the next six episodes. There tends to be the midpoint reversal at the end of the 12th episode, Mm -hmm. Uh, which you know basically complicates and then reverses the direction of, in some respect, of the middle plot. And then the major dramatic question of the middle uh, of the season tends to be resolved by the end of episode 18, at which point we then have an always lost moment that propels us into a new, even more dire crisis for the final six episodes mm-hmm. with a sense of rising action. So what we see is a classic... Uh, three-act structure where you've got six at the front, six at the back, 12 in the middle, and that's perfect three-act balance. Yeah. So you, you've got your setup, you've got your, your turn, you've got your midpoint reversal, you've got your all-is-lost moment, and then you've got your climax. So each season in and of itself is also a perfect example of three-act structure. And then they managed to carry this over the length of the series. So it's really a remarkable master class in story yeah. structure, in tension, in pacing, uh, action choreography, in you know just constantly keeping characters uh, up in the air, having characters shifting loyalties, uh, you know, on a moment's notice. Uh, it does make you wonder, though, why even after eight years, uh, CTU could not get better at doing background checks. But <laughs> you know, it's just one of those conceits you have to. Let run. Yeah. Talking about 24, about a non-Trek franchise, mm-hmm. throw out some favorite non-Trek movies or books that you enjoy just as a fan, as opposed to c- coming at it from a professional writer point of view. Well, I mean, if we're talking about books, uh, some of my favorite book series that have been running for a while, uh, Repairman Jack books by F. Paul Wilson. Uh, they're great urban fantasy with, you know, you've got sort of a supernatural element but also just kind of a nice gritty urban crime element. 
it's just a very cool series. I've read about, I think, seven, the first seven books or so, and I have a bunch more I need to read if I can just carve out a bit more time. Uh, a very different series, very different tone, very different style is the uh, Sandman Slim books by Richard Cadry. I love those. They're delightfully profane, poetically violent. They're just absolutely, you know, a wonderful reading experience. They're just, they're, they're pure adrenaline fun, uh, but with, you know, angels and demons and monsters and bloodshed and black magic and Los Angeles and rich assholes and just ever <laughs> it, it, it's just, just great. It's just a, a wonderful series. So I, I love those two book series. Those are sort of my two go-to, you know, whenever I've got time for just recreational reading, I'll either reach for one of the Sandman Slim books or I'll reach for uh, an F. Paul Wilson Repairman Jack book. Uh, in terms of uh, television, I tend to go through binge-watching phases. I mean, my wife and I enjoy a lot of the CW superhero shows right now. Oh, my gosh. I'm loving them all. Oh, yeah. We're, I mean, we're loving Flash and Supergirl. Those are sort of our two favorites. Lately, I've started binge-watching on Netflix uh, a series called The 100. Oh, yeah, yeah. Based on a book by Cass Morgan and uh, adapted and then expanded by the TV writers into something very epic. And... Although it's a CW show, so you'd think it's like a you know a teenage uh, soap opera with some science fiction elements grafted on. It's really not. It's actually a, a far more gripping and very well constructed post apocalyptic thriller drama type thing. Uh, it has gone in some very unexpected directions uh, as I've been watching it, and I've been enjoying the hell out of it. You can tell that a lot of really detailed thought went into the world building before they even started because, you know, they, they managed to seed little details early on in each season that then pay off later in the season. And you realize you know, that these things weren't accidental. They weren't just pulling stuff out of their hat and then, you know, retconning it later that there was clearly a plan and that, you know, all the clues you needed were there. It's been consistent throughout they thought out the ecosystem of their world, why things work the way they do, uh, how things are happening. And uh, I know that there had been a little bit of a fan kerfuffle online a few months back regarding the third season, which is the one that has aired most recently. Season four, I believe, starts in February of 2017 on the CW. Mm -hmm. And I've just gotten to the or just gotten past the episode that caused the fan kerfuffle. And at the time... When I was reading the kerfuffle, which basically centers around the the unfortunate television trope of dead lesbian, like the moment you actually oh. uh, finished, you know, uh, you know, fleshing out and humanizing the the lesbian character, and she's allowed to consummate her relationship with somebody on screen. The next thing you have to do is kill her. And uh, at the time, I was watching the arguments online. I thought, well, aren't you guys really blowing this out of proportion? This sounds like the kind of show that is killing off characters left and right since the very beginning, much like Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like a post-apocalyptic Game of Thrones, basically. <laughs> and I thought, you know, really, are you, aren't you guys just blowing this a little out of proportion? But I hadn't watched the show, so I didn't weigh in. I just stayed out of it. Now I've watched it. And the moment I saw the, you know, the, the scene that they were talking about, I'm like, oh, well, now I see why they're pissed. <laughs> It's not even that it was, you know, that there was anything intrinsically wrong with the character dying to serve the narrative. It's just that they did it in a really shitty way. And I'm like, oh, man, really? That's how you want that character to go out? That, that That's your solution? And, of course, the reason it happened is that they've lost the actress 
to another show. And she basically had got, she was a recurring character on the 100 and she got an offer to be series regular on fear the walking dead. Uh, so basically, mm. you know, in, in terms of, you know, in an actor's career going from recurring to series regular, yeah, that, that, that's a big move up the ladder in terms of, uh, you know, your asking price, your, your resume. So she had to take that, but it comes with an exclusivity clause, I imagine. But, or at the very least it comes with time demands, uh, yeah. and location demands. Cause I think the, the shows shoot in different locations. I believe one, shoots like up in Vancouver or something or Toronto and the other one shoots in Los Angeles and the Southern California area. So she just physically could not do both. They were the, yeah. the production entities were too far apart geographically that she couldn't shuttle between them and split her time. That wasn't happening. And so she picked fear of the walking dead cause you know, better paycheck above the line listing in credits, things like that. As a result, her character had to be written out of the 100 and you can't just have her vanish one day. She was too integral <laughs> yeah. to the plot. So they had to kill her. The problem, of course, is how they did it. And it was just, it was one of those things where this character deserved such a better death than mm -hmm. what she got. That's too bad. It's really too bad. That's, yeah, that's a series that I've occasionally thought of going back to. I watched, I can't remember if I watched the entire first season, but I watched at, at least the first several episodes and I was... You know, I was enjoying it, but um, for whatever reasons, I got distracted by something and got behind. And, and again, it's a story with uh, some pretty strong serial elements, and so then I just never got back to it. Yeah, very serialized. So it's gone on the long, long list of the possible uh, yes. binge-watching some sometime far, far down the road. Yeah, I mean, in terms of other shows, I'm looking forward to uh, next year, the uh, return of Sense8. Uh, season two of that, I'm hoping will live up to the promise of the first season, which was excellent. And that's another one that I watched the first half of, and then somehow haven't gotten back to yet. Dude, you got to finish that because Sense Eight is Sense Eight is genius. It is some of the bravest, boldest yes. uh, work I've ever seen done in the television format. And audacious, the, yeah. It's audacious, and the thing is, only Netflix could possibly have distributed that. No oh, premium. Yeah. Not even HBO or Showtime would have dared distribute that. The balls it took to create that and put it out there unexpurgated the way the Wachowskis made it. That, yeah. it's, just, it's just one of the bravest things I've ever seen. I loved it, uh, but only Netflix could possibly have pulled that off. And I salute them for doing it. Do you have any uh, non-genre stuff that you're watching or non-science fiction? Let's see. I watch uh, How to Get Away with Murder just because I sort of enjoy watching Viola Davis chew scenery. My schedule is pretty heavily crammed with genre, I have to be honest. I watched yeah. The Blacklist, which is more crime thriller, not really mm -hmm. genre. Have uh, you watched uh, The Fall with Gillian Anderson? I have. I watched and really enjoyed the first season of it. Then I watched the second season, and I was really enjoying watching it play out. And then what happened was they got to the last, I would say, 10 to 15 minutes of the second season of, of its finale. Mm -hmm. And it suddenly felt as if the entire British writing staff had been dismissed and replaced <laughs> by a bunch of American writing jerk-offs uh, sent in by Netflix to rewrite the end of the finale. Because the ending felt so shittily American uh, that it just did not seem to fit with the overall British tone 
of the rest of the miniseries. And I got to the end, and I, I thought you were doing so well until you got to the last ten minutes, and I then can, it, and then it just went up its own ass. I <laughs> and I've had I, no interest in coming back. Like I'm, I'm looking at like the episode descriptions for season three, which uh, just arrived on Netflix, and I'm like. I don't care. I, I don't really see how this could go forward. I would have much rather seen her work a new case than, you know, go back into the emotional mud of this clearly exhausted storyline. I, I get where you're coming from on the ending of uh, season two, mm-hmm. but I, I would say you might want to try to give season three a chance because. Um, really? Really? Yeah, it's 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 a very slow burn, disturbing. I don't know. I I really enjoyed the third season, and um, we've digressed off into some of these other things that we enjoy. But let's bring it back to your work, uh, specifically your original fiction. So far, only a small smattering has made it out into the world. The first piece, of course, was uh, a novel titled "The Calling." That came out in 2009 from Simon and & Schuster, and that was about a guy named Tom Nash. He's a handyman from a small town in eastern Pennsylvania who sometimes hears when other people pray for help. He doesn't know how, doesn't know why, doesn't know why him. He doesn't know why he hears this prayer and not that prayer, but what he does know is that once he hears a prayer, he's got to find the person who made it, and he's got to figure out what to do about it. And it changes from person to person and situation to situation. And it's always been small-town local stuff that he could handle until one day he hears a prayer from a girl who's been kidnapped in New York City. And suddenly he's got to get up and leave his pregnant wife and pack up his pickup truck and drive to a city he's never wanted to go to. And before he knows it, he's caught up in a mess between corrupt New York City cops, Russian mafia, and supernatural bad guys he didn't know existed. And he finds out he's part of a war between heaven and hell. He didn't know what was going on. And the only thing that everybody else seems to have in common is that they all want him dead. It's a nonstop adventure. It's with, something else. With, with demons and... With angels and demons and a supernatural yeah. element. And the notion, of course, is that, you know, one of the things, this is kind of a little bit of a spoiler, but not really. You find out over the course of the book that the reason he's able to hear when people pray for help is that he is part of a group of people that are known as the called. And what that means is from birth, they are spiritually bonded with angels. Their soul is basically fused with the essence of an angel. And this bond lasts for life. Uh, it is something that the angel had to basically enter into uh, by the will of the divine. So it's you know just sort of one of these things. It's not like it's forced. Uh, the divine says, and you're connected to that one. And being so connected grants certain powers and certain abilities, but it also comes with certain responsibilities, certain obligations. On the other side of it, there are the scorned, which are people who are born with their spirits fused to the essence of demons. And these bring different powers of a, you know, of, of a more violent nature, typically. Uh, and as a result, these two groups, which operate behind the scenes of our everyday world, are in constant struggle. They have mysterious, shadowy agendas, and we find out that our main character is a guy who did not know that he was part of all this because unlike most of the called and most of the scorned, uh, he was kept hidden and isolated from all of this for most of his life until he's about 33. And then he's suddenly thrown into it head first. 
and we are led to believe that there is something potentially significant about this uh, isolation followed by this sudden emergence. Now there's this label, urban fantasy, mm -hmm. that has developed over the years. And it tends to often mean paranormal romance. Yes, but there's a lot more going on in, in the genre than some people realize because it's it's basically anything that's set in what is essentially the contemporary real world, but then has elements of magic or... Supernatural. It can be a very fun uh, conceit. It's you know It gives a, a very interesting uh, new spin on some of these story elements. And yours really just fit the bill perfectly. It was, it was uh, fun and action and adventure and funny. Right. I mean, what I wanted to do was sort of uh, an urban fantasy... Uh, in the spirit of, say, the Dresden Files, uh, mm -hmm. or, you know, if, it's a good thing that I wrote my book before I discovered Repairman Jack or Sandman Slim, because I realized only after I had read the work of F. Paul Wilson and Richard Cadry that they had actually done what I, in the back of my head, wished I had done. <laughs> uh, I, I'm glad I didn't read theirs before I wrote The Calling, or I would have probably wound up aping one of them much more closely than I really should have. <laughs> Or maybe uh, not writing it because he would have just said, oh, it's done. I give up. It. I, it's done. I give up. I'm going to yeah. go and wear a hair shirt and throw myself in the Hudson, <laughs> which I may yet do anyway. But yeah, so I was basically shooting for this notion of uh, urban fantasy without romance because I've got this main character who is married. He's got a kid on the way. So he's about to become a family man. And he sort of embarked on this domestic path in life because he didn't know that he was about to become part of this long-standing supernatural war between heaven and hell. And if he had, he might have made different choices. And this is one of the things that his co-star, you know, his uh, partner in crime in the story who he meets along the way tells him, you know, you really should let your uh, significant other go and go solo for her own mm -hmm. protection. But, of course, he's too far along. He's not going to leave his wife and abandon his child. That's not who he is. So there's that sort of a theme where you know, you've always got these loners who seem to have nothing left to lose. And it makes yeah. them very convenient as expendable characters. And I thought, all right, what happens if you take the main character and you make him into a guy who's not easily expendable and who has commitments and obligations and who can't just at a moment's notice walk away? Yeah. He's got something to lose and he can't just let it go. So I decided to sort of approach uh, the story of the calling uh, from what I thought at the time were non-conventional directions in urban fantasy, or at least uh, less common directions. So you mentioned that you hadn't yet read a couple of these other uh, urban fantasy series. What drew you into the urban fantasy genre from science fiction? Because it leads us into your upcoming epic dark arts trilogy. I would say that for me, the attraction of urban fantasy, and part of the reason I wrote The Calling back in uh, 2008, 2009, was that I wanted to start moving away from tie-ins. I wanted to start moving away from science fiction, which at that point represented the bulk mm -hmm. of my uh, curriculum vitae and now represents an even larger percentage <laughs> of it. And part of what attracted me to it was the fact that it felt like it was a, uh, a more happening genre. It was more likely to attract film and television adaptation. Mm -hmm. It was also uh, appealing to me because it didn't have the burden of techno babble. It was, you know, <laughs> it was a thing where, you know, there, there, there's magic, you know, pseudo babble of all kinds. I mean, you've got your, you know, fantasy conceits, but it was a situation where, 
rather than working in the rather complicated arena of Star Trek fictional technology and its many decades of accumulated fictional rules, I had the opportunity to start with a clean slate, establish my own narrative rules regarding angels, demons, how they interact with people, how they interact with the world, with each other, uh, what are their limitations, what is the cosmology behind this world. I got to sort of figure that all out for myself. And then once I had those rules, I realized I was playing in my own sandbox, my own toys, my own rules, and it made it a lot easier to keep track of things and tell a story that I thought was more directly human, more directly relatable than I think some of the Star Trek stuff would be. Uh, it was also because it was a standalone work. It was the kind of thing that you can just hand it to somebody and they don't need to have read eight other books uh, <laughs> to know what the hell's going on in this one. It's like, no, yeah. it's a standalone. The book starts and it finishes. And although I meant it to be the beginning of a series, it only ever sold itself as a standalone. At the time, Simon and Schuster was wary of offering a multi-book deal. So uh, Marco Palmieri at the time was the editor at Simon & Schuster who acquired it. He acquired the single book. Sadly, he got laid off uh, right after the book was done with copy editing because of the global economic meltdown in the fall of 2008. Uh, yeah. he, he and about a third of the staff of Simon & Schuster, along with many other publishing houses, all found themselves out of work uh, because of that economic implosion. And then by the time the book came out in July of 2009, the recession, of course, had only worsened and uh, Borders Books went out of business right before my book was published. And with the closing of Borders Books and all of its retail locations, 15% of the book's presales vanished because, you know, presales happen with the sale to the retailers who then try to re resell the book. So we lost 15% of our resales right off the top, took a massive economic hit, had a sh just a boatload of returns that we weren't expecting. And part of the problem, too, anyone who works in publishing has probably been through this or knows this, but maybe your listeners uh, don't. When you sell a book like this and your editor, your acquiring editor is – let go or departs the company for whatever reason. In this case, you know, not for any professional reason, but just for economic reasons. What happens is your book is then described as having been orphaned because the editor serves as the champion for the book during sales meetings. Part of the editor's job is not just to help the writer refine the content of the book itself, but to work with the publisher the sales force, the marketing team, the art department, and then eventually, you know, through them with retailers to get the book better placement, to get it better advertising, to get the sales force excited about it, get them behind it and get them to sell it more effectively. When the book is orphaned and loses its editorial champion, responsibility for the book tends to wind up on the desk of someone else who inherits a stack of work from the lost editor and sometimes when you lose multiple people at once, as happened in 2008, tons of work gets reassigned. The remaining people all get buried in other people's work. So now they have all the books they've acquired in which they're trying to champion through the system. And now they've acquired these stacks of other projects that they also have to shepherd through the system. But now you have to think like the person who has acquired a bunch of someone else's work. The stuff you've acquired has your name on it. And if it fails, it's your ass. So you've got to make sure that stuff goes well to protect yourself professionally. 
the stuff that you've inherited from other people, you just have to do the bare minimum to get it off your desk. Because if it sinks, it doesn't have your name on it. That's not your problem. That's not your fault. And you're not going to burn a lot of effort trying to move one of these things and get one of these things to catch fire. Because if it does, it doesn't redound to your benefit. You don't get the credit. It doesn't help you. You just need to get it off your desk. So that's why they call the book Being Orphaned. You wind up with a foster editor who doesn't really give a damn about you and just wants you out of their house, off their desk, and so they to make room for the stuff that they're actually acquiring and which matters to them. So that was what happened to my book. It got orphaned during a time of economic disaster. Borders Books closes, takes away the pre-sales. And the book just basically came out to, you know, it got great reviews. I got tons of great reviews on blogs and whatever, but they didn't really do much in terms of moving the book. The book just kind of sat there and the economy just basically made me take it really right in the throat. And there was just nothing to be done about it. And that's why there was never a sequel to The Calling. It's not that I didn't have ideas for sequels. It's not that I didn't pitch sequels to Simon & Schuster. It's that between getting orphaned and then coming out in the midst of a recession, the book did not sell enough copies that Simon & Schuster wanted to invest more money in perpetuating the story. So when I decided to, you know, uh, I, I, I then, of course, had to regroup and find some other way to keep working as a writer and keep, you know, my bills paid. So I ended up having to go back and submerge deep into the world of tie-in work yet again, adding many more Star Trek books and other tie-ins to my resume over the intervening years. And when I finally got around to putting together a proposal for a new original uh, contemporary fantasy series, although it was similar in some of its inspirations to The Calling in terms of the uh, the background of the world, the cosmology, the magic system, etc., I knew that I couldn't just do a direct sequel because another publisher is not going to want to buy a sequel to a book that failed for another publisher. Unless, of course, you can get the rights to the original book reverted, rewrite it, put it out under a new title with the new publisher, and then relaunch the series. That's a long shot, but it can be done. Problem is, I couldn't get the rights back to the calling. I, I couldn't get the rights reverted. So I had to file off the serial numbers of my own series. <laughs> so, And that's what I did with Dark yep. Arts. Dark Arts is essentially a three-book uh, deal that I signed with Tor back in uh, late 2014, early 2015. The first book is going to drop in the first quarter of 2018. It's taking a lot longer to make this process work than I had thought it was going to. But part of the reason it's taking that much time is that there were, you know, is that I sold it, first of all, based on three chapters and an outline. Uh, and I was not exactly clear with myself as to how long it was really going to take me to write the massive war epic <laughs> first novel. It took a bit longer than I thought it, it was going to. Is epic in scope. And to make it clear for the listeners who may not know this, it is also a period piece because it's a, it's in World War II, the first volume. And so you've got a whole other layer of complexity there. Yep, tons of research because it's based on the real World War II. It's secret history, not alt history. The idea is that I wanted to link the events of the narrative to real events from the war, real places, in some cases, real people. 
Uh, and so the level of research that went into the book uh, was staggering. And then it made the writing a much more complex process because I had to be aware at every single moment, you know, before I establish any detail about the setting, about the world, about clothing, about weapons, uh, about the state of the war at any given moment, I had to double check at every single turn, is that accurate? Is that yep. really the way it was? Could that tank possibly have been deployed to that you know, battlefield at that time? Or had they not penetrated that far into Europe at that time? So, I mean, I'm, I was constantly second-guessing every detail. Now, when the book finally comes out, people who have read The Calling and who then read The Midnight Front, which is the first book of the Dark Arts series, if they are particularly astute, they're probably going to see oh, yes, this is probably the same fictional universe. They're going to realize it. They're going to realize I've changed the names, whereas in The Calling, you had the people bonded with angels were known as the called, and the ones bonded with demons were referred to as the scorned. I went for Hebrew names in The Midnight Front so that the people bonded with angels are referred to as Nikraim, and then you have the ones bonded with demons are called the Nadak. And I got these words uh, sort of loosely transliterated by friends of mine who are fluent in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And they said there is no direct translation, but they said those would be the closest approximation. Uh, and so we went with that. So it's sort of a, a fictionalized Hebrew bit of nomenclature that is not used in real life. So it was it was just one of these things where, you know, I, I wanted to do something that was in the same fictional universe that could build upon the same cosmology that I had been building to previously, but I had to disguise it both for sales, <laughs> both for sales purposes and marketing purposes. Yeah. And when the time comes to market these books, the idea is to market them as something brand new. Uh, and not to link them to the calling. That's something that will be, you know, I will leave to people who are able to peruse podcasts like this one uh, <laughs> or who are just, you know, big enough fans that they've read my previous work and even over, you know, a gap of nine years will be able to make that connection and go, I see what you did there. Although in the dark arts, we get a more detailed and complex layering of, of what's going on with these uh, angels and demons and such. We, uh, well, we, we do because I had to bring in a whole new system of magic, yeah, which was essentially taking Renaissance-era black magic in the style of grimoires like the Claviculus Alamonis, the Lesser Key of Solomon, uh, the Lemigitan, uh, A. Waits uh, ceremonial magic, uh, you know, stuff like that, operating on the premise that it works exactly the way it says it does in the old 15th century grimoires. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then adding on the one sort uh, the one sort of twist that I added that's not in any of the books uh, to make it more cinematic, more visual and, and more action oriented uh, and getting it out of this rather antiseptic Renaissance mode that treated black magic like a branch of science to make it more cinematic. I added this principle called yoking, which is a notion where the magician takes the, the demon that it has summoned that he or she has summoned and through force of will and magic ritual bonds that demon to his or her flesh, 
basically, you know, uh, taking them into the body and holding them hostage, yoking them, putting them into bondage, as it were. And for as long as the magician remains mentally and physically strong enough to hold the demon in thrall, the magician is then able to wield the demon's signature magical power as if it is his or her own. And the problem is the more demons you try to yoke in this manner and force into your service, the greater the pain you have to endure, the more miserable the experience becomes. Even holding a single one is awful. I mean, you end up with nightmares and digestive problems and OCD. The demon will basically take control of your hands when you're not paying attention and make you start tearing out your eyebrows, your hair, your beard whiskers. It'll make you cut yourself when you're not paying attention. And of course, to suppress the pain and the psychological torment and the nightmares and the the constant battle within, magicians who do this sort of magic usually wind up reverting to heavy use of alcohol heroin, cigarettes, uh, or anything else, anything to distract and dull the pain. So you wind up with magicians who, over the course of many years, get strung out, they become dope addicts, drunkards, and then even once the demons are gone, the bad habits remain. Uh, So it's not an easy way to go through life. I mean, if you just want to do black magic out of the book and call up the demon, send it abroad to do its magic, it comes back and then you send it away, that's one thing. That's Physically taxing to a degree, but not in the way that yoking is. If you actually want to carry magic around and be able to throw fire from your hand or throw lightning from your hand or walk through walls and pull off crazy stunts like that, for that you have to yoke demons, and that hurts like hell. Pardon the pun. (laughs) It's a great magical system, a very compelling and dramatic twist. Well, I mean, I had great help on it. It was Aaron Rosenberg. Uh, who has a lot of experience in role-playing game design, as well as being a very prolific and fantastic uh, writer of uh, speculative prose of all kinds. He actually suggested the yoking concept to me over lunch one day as I was discussing the book with him, and I was talking about how I was concerned about the rather static nature of my magic system and trying to figure out how to balance a more cinematic style with the historical Uh, referent that I wanted Mm -hmm. to link it to. And it was Aaron who uh, suggested the term yoking and the uh, basic principle behind the mechanics. I then took that and developed it, but I would probably, I mean, maybe I would have come up with it eventually, but I think it would have taken me a lot longer had Aaron not planted the idea in my head Mm -hmm. and and steered me down the right path. And although it's, going to be a long time before that first book comes out. God, yes. Fans should know that they can get a taste by picking up the anthology Apollo's Daughters. Right, which has a uh, a novelette called Hell Road With Her. And it features the book's female main character, Anya Karnova. And she's a, uh, a, Russia, a young Russian woman. And she's part of this group called the Midnight Front, which is uh, a secret magical warfare program run by the Allies. And by the time of the novelette, Hell Road With Her, she has gone off on her own. She has spent some time fighting with the Red Army in Stalingrad, Kursk, and Kharkov. And the premise of Hell Road With Her is that she has deserted from the Red Army in the midst of the war in February of 1944. And she has tried to go home 
to the village where she grew up and from which she was ostracized after the death of her younger brother, who was in her care at the time. And she tries to, you know, go back to see her mother who will not see her. And she finds herself ambushed there by a group that she did not know was uh, in existence, a group called Red Star, which is the Soviet version of the Midnight Front. They're basically, you know, a group of, you know, Soviets who are taking up black magic with an eye toward pulling off a coup and maybe, you know, ousting Stalin and seizing control. And although, you know, in historic, you know, in hindsight, we think, yeah, maybe that wouldn't have been such a bad idea. <laughs> At the time, uh, Anya Karnova, as she has to explain to these guys within the context of the story, because they're trying to get her to divulge her secrets because they know who she is. She says, I am many things, but I am first and foremost a patriot. And she's not going to let these guys betray the government of Mother Russia. And she winds up taking these guys out. I mean, she very nearly gets killed in the process. But it's basically, you know, about her refusing to submit, refusing to be bullied. Uh, you know, it's basically about a strong woman who has to tell the patriarchy to go fuck itself. Yeah. And uh, I had a lot of fun writing it. I had tried to incorporate that novelette in a slightly edited form into the novel itself. Originally it was a storyline that I had excised from the novel. Uh, and then I thought maybe I'll put it back. And then the mm -hmm. novel manuscript wound up being too long. And then during the revision process, it ended up getting cut again. Uh, uh -huh. Although a number of edits have been made. And one thing we're talking about doing by the time the book comes out, the Midnight Front is supposed to come out. I'm not sure exactly when, but sometime in the first two or three months of 2018. Sometime around then, Hell Road with her will probably be republished in an edited and modified format on tour.com. Oh, nice. That's the current plan uh, as part of the promotion for the lead up to the book. But if fans are interested in sort of getting a taste of this world right now, you can pick up the anthology Apollo's Daughters. It's available in paperback and ebook formats on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can find it through my website at davidmack.pro, uh, as well as many other places. And it's just one of many stories of powerful, bold, audacious women written by male authors who love strong, bold, audacious women. <laughs> <laughs> and it was part of a, uh, a Kickstarter program as a companion volume to Athena's Daughters, which was the uh, sort of parent volume that got the whole thing rolling. And that was stories of powerful, strong women characters written by strong women authors. And there were a number of male authors who wanted to show support for this idea. And mm -hmm. so we signed on as a stretch goal to do Apollo's Daughters where you know it was basically guys sort of expressing the same idea yeah. and uh, i was very happy to have been part of that project and uh, to have gotten a chance to bring this story to life we've had a far-ranging discussion here across the landscape of your work is there anything that i've forgotten that you wanted to mention i just want to say a little bit more about the the dark art series in general which is just that the whole series uh is supposed to transpire over a period of many years of the 20th century. Uh, the idea is to look at 20th century geopolitics from this secret history angle of a small group of magicians who survive through the ages thanks to magical longevity. 
so the first book is a war epic that takes place uh, during World War II, and it spans September 1939 to September 1945. The second book, The Iron Codex, is uh, I'm planning to set that in 1953, and it's going to deal with everything from McCarthyism to the end of the Korean War, the early struggles of the nascent Israeli state, uh, hunting Nazis in South America, and uh, a whole host of other issues. And then the third book is Shadow Commission, and that's supposed to be set in 1963, just after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And it's going to sort of bring into focus the overarching plot of the series as a whole, which is to examine how the West went from fighting fascism in the 40s to becoming the cradle uh, that would eventually rekindle fascism going forward into the 21st century. Uh, and that was you know, how the premise for the series as a whole. My hope is that if the first three books, if The Midnight Front, The Iron Codex, and Shadow Commission do well enough that Tor is willing to extend the series, the other fun thing about the series is that each book is not just a replay of the last one, but a complete shift. The first book is a war epic. The second one is supposed to be a spy thriller. The third one is a conspiracy piece. Yeah. The fourth book, if I was able to go forward into, say, the late 60s or the early 70s, would be sort of a gritty uh, urban crime epic. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a book set in the 80s would basically be a uh, you know a rise of corporatism, corporation versus corporation, corporate warfare, almost cyberpunk, nascent cyberpunk type idea. 90s, you would start to see the uh, collapse of old systems, and it would be about balkanization, fracturing of old relationships, and so on and so forth. And the idea was to basically tell a different kind of story, write a different kind of book, like you know, maybe take on one of the stories, like take on the story in the 90s from the point of view of a detective story as opposed to an adventure story. So the idea is to keep challenging myself as an author yeah. uh, to, to write a different kind of book each time while exploring a larger meta story. I sure hope your super plan comes to fruition. So do I. And I hope HBO comes along and buys the rights and yeah. <laughs> pays me oodles and skaboodles of money. Because I've read the uh, the first one in manuscript and uh, really enjoyed it. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. And, oh, it's going to be such a long wait. <laughs> yeah. Believe me, from my standpoint, it is excruciating. <laughs> But uh, as soon as I finish my current Titan novel, and then I, I have to do my Discovery novel by the end of March, and then as soon as that's done, I immediately go to work on the Iron Codex in April. Well, it has been so much fun having you on the show. Been a blast being here. I wish that Ella could have been here. Oh, you know what? I have to bring up one thing in honor of Ella's absence, because she probably would have brought this up if she was here. She was goofing around on Facebook and ended up in an argument with some of some of her friends she had recently been watching house md and she was struck by its many sherlock holmes-esque allusions mm -hmm. house holmes it, it's not subtle really no it, but... <laughs> it's medical sherlock that's how it was pitched but uh, for some reason, one of her friends was discounting that it was related to sherlock holmes and then you popped into the discussion, <laughs> dropped that you had actually discussed this with Brian Singer, one of the producers. <laughs> yeah. 
I, and just it was the first time I met Brian Singer was before the show had aired. <laughs> the pilot script was sitting on the dresser in his hotel room. He was at the W Hotel in New York, and I picked it up and we just ended up chatting it about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, among many other things. But yeah, and I, I remember that was the whole premise of it was to take Sherlock Holmes, make it into a medical mystery drama. Uh, I mean, and there's all sorts of little details, like the addresses, like you, I think there's some address that's marked as 221B something, yeah, yeah. like his office or something. And it's like, it's clearly an allusion to Sherlock Holmes. Yep. So I pop into this Facebook discussion, I drop a bunch of knowledge. And high powered names, and it just comes in, boom, mic drop, discussion over. <laughs> and Elle just loved it just thought that was the coolest thing that suddenly you know a friend pops in and well I was talking to Brian Singer and boom ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times good times and thus concludes my epic interview with the equally epic Dave Mack Speaking of epics, tune in next time for episode 42, The Ape is Back in Town, as we discuss Kong Skull Island, with shout-outs to previous incarnations of the world's largest primate. Until then, check out our archives for episode 7, King Geek, wherein we discussed the 1933, 1976, and 2005 King Kong movies, plus other Kong stuff. Remember that Generations Geek is part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from within a troop of gorillas in Africa. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny. <laughs>